0: Hello and welcome to Power PowerTalk Season 3, the Lockdown Edition. Power Talks are short, powerful interviews from leading youth violence experts, spreading new ideas and sharing best practice. For more information on the work our charity Power to Fight does and to discover how you can help empower communities to end youth violence, please visit www.powertofight.org.uk. Today, we are rejoined by Craig Pinckney from Solve, And we talk about culturally competent therapy, trauma, and the impact of COVID-19 on young people. Yes, so welcome to Power Talks Season 3, the lockdown edition. Yes, I'm still in my car. um, And I really wanted to get my next guest back. Um, He's Power Talks for Season 2 were some of the ones which were the most watched and the most talked about. So it only seems right to get my guy back. So, Craig Pinkney, welcome back to Power Talk Season 3. Peace, peace, peace to the family. You know. Good to see you. Good to see you. Now, boy, I think the last time we, we spoke, it was almost, I think it was like summer last year when we did um, Power Talk Season 2. yeah. And a lot has changed in that time. It's not even been a year, but a lot has changed. Um, like obviously the studio setup's a little bit different. I'm in a car, you're in your yard. But obviously COVID, coronavirus, is, is kind of just changed everything. So give me the 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 post or even the pre-corona, what was kind of happening with you just prior to it. And then kind of what's what's changed for you and your practice
1: in this time? Yeah, man. Um, Well, yes, crazy. A lot had changed. I would say going into more so to the end of the year, it was around about November. Um, uh, One of my uh, business partners, a close friend of mine, um, and also a mentor, Joan Campbell, passed. Um, And that really kind of, you know, taught me, to a very dark place, man. You know, when you, when you connect to someone on a certain level and you respect them and you've got so much love for them and you look up to them, it's kind of that reminder that tomorrow's not promised. And even though she was unwell for a while and we knew at some point it was going to come, you know, death is just one of those things that, you know, you can never be comfortable with and you can never ultimately prepare for. So whilst I was going through that situation I was also dealing with some personal issues. I was dealing with some issues at work. And I I, I was probably in probably the most darkest place that I've probably ever been in. Um, And somebody had said to me that um, it'd be wise if I would um, speak to someone. And it's weird because even though we talk about trauma from practice and we talk about mental health and mental well-being, still many of us don't really take that clinical supervision and, you know, we, we kind of are quite hesitant to be vulnerable. So I, I made that choice to be vulnerable for one period of time and I um, contacted someone that I actually met through Joan and it was a sister named Clancy Williams. is a therapist, um, an African-centred therapist and, you know, we arranged to meet You know, she said that, you know, I could come to her home, um, which I did. And I just found myself being very emotional, bro. You know, very emotional. She asked me some real tough questions, questions that I would say that really challenged me at my core to a lot of the issues that I was kind of facing, um, the racism that I felt that I was kind of going through at the time. Um dealing with the death um, and she kind of just said that you know what that what I'm ultimately going through is kind of multiple traumas because I also was dealing with the fact that prior to that that my uh, uncle died I had a student of mine that also died so it was like multiple death, and then also dealing with my personal circumstances as well so she had said you know what I think you should take a break and I did so I went to uh, Africa for a couple of weeks and took some time out, and then I came back, had another follow up session with her, and again she asked me some real challenging questions. And at that point, I really kind of started to reflect on my value and who I was, and where I wanted to kind of go for my future. And I made a, a very big decision, um, and it's weird because it kind of remains reminds me of a, a decision I made eight years ago, and I decided that I didn't want to be at the university. So under first day back into the new year in January, I handed in my notice um, and nobody seen it coming Um, and that particular day I I went I remember going over to the PCC and kind of letting them know that I've just left my job and uh, the response that I got from one of my colleagues in there was, don't worry we got you. And uh, I think at that point I realised my value, that You know, I didn't need to jump through hoops to, to, you know, to get things moving. And I would say that that particular month in January, I just really, you know, put some strategy into what it is that I was going to do next. Um, And My partner in crime, you know, Raymond Douglas, helped me out a lot in terms of, you know, he's the marketing beast. Uh, Yeah, I don't know. Nobody in the UK that can talk to him for marketing. Um, And he, he kind of gave me some scenarios, gave me some ideas. Um, and then, you know, I built the, this new brand solve the center for youth violence and conflict. And I think that kind of embodied everything that I was ultimately about, you know, I've always been about solving the problem. You know, Mm. uh, what's been about implementing and applying all of the things we talk about, all of the methods and approaches that we kind of theorize about and putting that into practice, whether that is, you know, at a practitioner level, where is that as uh, a community level um, or working with young people. Um, And I kind of just felt that, you know, what were the kind of key things that was going to support me? or helped me to kind of move that forward. So speaking to like Dr. Martin Glynn and Ray and Tanaya and yourself and others kind of started to bounce some of those ideas of, you know, what what does that look like and, you know, what does that look like as a service? You know, and, and I think that's what kind of became. So I've got a number of contracts up and down the country to deliver training and development, to do stuff in schools, um, to do stuff with um, residential care homes, Um, to do stuff with um, children's services, social services. And then um, just as I kind of started to build that momentum, um, we had another calamity in our community where, you know, a close friend of ours, um, son got taken. And it was probably one of the most, bearing in mind, I just spoke about the traumatic experiences I was going through just before the end of the year. And I think this one hit me differently. Um, And I'll, this is probably the first time I've really kind of shared this quite openly and it it, it, it hit me at the core. Um, total shock. Um, and I found myself very, very numb. And if I kind of just kind of fast forward, the whole situation kind of happened quite quickly, you know, talking about the announcement of the death and then the funeral. And I remember seeing you at that particular time and It just was weird and I think the week after or the two weeks after I tried to go back to work and I remember I think I messaged you and I messaged another couple of people and we all tried to go back to work and I think on that same day I don't know what we were all doing in the country but we were all trying to do something and we all had the same emotion and I realised something wasn't right so I know that I, I, I opted to have another session. Um, with my therapist and again she was just kind of putting things into perspective you know because we talk about self-care and we talk about the balance and looking after ourselves but she also said that there's going to be some of us in society that are called to do a specific type of job so we're always going to be faced with trauma we're always going to be dealing with trauma we're always going to be as Dr. Martin Glynn would say cleaning up society's bins so we're always going to be faced with those particular adversities but well, it's about how do we manage that? And I think that's what I kind of learned from that session is that I know that we're going to get hit with something else. Um, but even though I had that kind of conversation with the uh, something still just wasn't right. Um, and then COVID-19 come. So then that from a financial perspective, I was just like, whoa, you know, what, what, what am I going to do now? And fortunately, I had a, um, an email from Norfolk County Council um and a colleague and friend of mine, um, Liana E. Banks, um, had said that they were very interested in the on-road youth work approach. Um and they said, Would I be able to apply that during COVID nineteen and support some of their social workers and their missing teams and youth offending whilst the kind of um unfolding of the the lockdown guidelines? And I was just like, Yes, because I wasn't in a position to say no. Um So, yeah, I got to work. You know, I I didn't know how far the mission was. Um, but As I said, I wasn't in a position to say no. And that's ultimately what I did. And I would say that they were probably the first, to my knowledge, in the country to adapt the approach of utilising children's services and criminal justice entities and merging that with youth work and whilst that was going on I sat on um, an expert group with the National Youth Agency and we were kind of giving guidance to local government and national government around what is the role of youth work and what is the role of youth work or detached youth work in communities during COVID-19 because my premise was that Three things that I kind of said that were my biggest concerns. One, around risky behaviour of young people, as young people are not in school, not doing anything. Um, they were just kind of going to be out and about, which links to their education around COVID-19. You've got all of these conspiracy theories, theories that are kind of floating around, 5G and um, things made in a lab. And, you know, these things we actually can go into, you know, because there's a difference between conspiracy theory and conspiracy th- fact. But the third thing I was also concerned about was... Um, exploitation of children and young people as that links to the kind of drug trade and we know that if we're talking about import and export um, of um, drugs and if that's possibly limited that means you know that the heroin and cocaine is going to go up in price which means that people are going to probably do more risky things in order to get that money where that opens the door for children and young people that probably not at home. They probably go missing from time to time. There's issues at home where parents can't control them, but also situations where there's domestic violence and where there's issues where young people don't want to be in the house for a range of different types of reasons. Um, And that's where exploitation kind of um, was the key thing. So as a back of that, um, I know that the uh, National Youth Youth Agency put out a report based on the, the conversation that we were having in that expert group called Out of Sight. And I recommend that a lot of people read that document because it's really good at talking about what the response ultimately should be from youth workers in engaging with children and young people during COVID-19. Um, and yeah, in a kind of small kind of summary, that's kind of what's happened. Um, I mean, it seems like it's been short, but a lot has happened. And I think I'll just kind of end with the about a week and a half ago, um, I've been also advocating that violence that takes place around the country's region to region. So, whereas you may have seen some reports in London that have said that criminality has has dropped in terms of knife crime and gang activity in Birmingham and the West Midlands, that's been slightly different. There's been a number of shootings. There was one particular stabbing that happened a couple about a week and a half ago, um, which was. You know' probably one of the most graphic things that I've seen, and I've seen a number of um, violent incidents with young people. and I think maybe not so much the video, I think it was a bit of both the video and the way it was shared because the video showed a young man have a cardiac arrest on the spot broad daylight, and then I think this the quickness to how individuals were sending it around really also impacted me as well because. You know, a number of professionals sent me that without warning and kind of made me reflect on the last situation that I was dealing with as well. So I found myself being quite angry with some of my friends and colleagues because I felt like they didn't give me the opportunity to make a choice whether I wanted to see it or not. And I think secondly, we talk about this idea about being trauma informed, as I said before, but do we really understand what that means? You know, because we're quick to teach young people and also teach fellow professionals about being mindful about the images and the videos that we share, yet still we can get also caught up in the hype. So, in this situation, I actually defend young people that in all circumstances or in some circumstances, we can't be too harsh on them because we're guilty of doing those things sometimes as well. Um, so, yeah. Bro, even though bro, 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 whoa, whoa, whoa. So, hold on. <laughs> on. This is why I love speaking to you because.
0: First and foremost, um, I think like you said at the start of this conversation, you know, you're talking about some stuff you've not spoken about publicly. So I appreciate and respect that massively. But you've just touched on so much, which I want to get into. You know, mm. I think, you know, you've spoken about your own trauma, and that is something which, so people watching this need to understand. Like I've known you almost over ten years now. Mm. And so, you know, I've seen, I've seen your career. I've seen, you know, everything that you're achieving. It's been wonderful. But it's interesting how particular circumstances, some of the things that you've mentioned, some of the things that we've seen over the last few months, man, this is probably one of the first times we've had like a, a proper conversation about trauma, our own personal trauma, and actually the need for therapy. And I think it's actually really powerful. I think it's a powerful thing that two black men are having that conversation. So I want I want to touch on on that just for a moment, and I'll, and I'll talk to some other stuff. But one of the things I want to talk about, just in that, is you said Afro. I think you used the term as Afrocentric um, therapy, which is which is a new one but for me. But I, I get where you're going. What I would say, and what something we're working on and working towards is the need and desire for more cultural competent therapy. So, which I think is the same thing. So it's like, well, how, how, how do you, how do you get therapy? And how do you find therapists who really understand the context and the culture they're working in? And the more we're finding is that actually that isn't something which we see in abundance. We don't see cultural competent therapists. How important is it? Do you feel? And what, what, what's the, how detrimental has it been to our communities <clears throat> when ourselves as black people, people of color, and specifically black men are not actually seeking the therapy because you're talking about things which have happened over the last six months. But that's before we start talking about the, the, the historic stuff which we've seen yeah. over, over, over years, decades, yeah. and we've, we've never been a community to really get the type of help and therapy we need. What's the detriment and how important is that for us?
1: It's very important, but I think, you know, you, you, you know how we do already, Ben. When you, when you say things to me, I'm never just a straight answer. It's normally kind of... Of course. A, I, I, think the first, I think the first thing to kind of first acknowledge is that when we're talking about African-centred approaches, it's not new. It's not a new terminology. I mean, I've got books behind me that talk about African-centred therapy that goes back, way, way, way back... I think that the the understanding, and I would say more about the appreciation of it, is more starting to come through now because mental health services and mental health practitioners are asking new questions. And I think that goes along with the data technology and research um, that people are ultimately putting out. And the question that they're ultimately asking is, how do we get black young men in the therapy room? How do we get black people in the therapy room? So when they ask those questions, these answers start to come about, that people start to talk about this idea about race and this idea about um, many people feel that they live within an environment or they live within a um, society where race is at the number one um, forefront of people's thoughts and ideas and behaviors, yet they're made to feel that that's not a problem. So all of these kind of dynamics that are kind of happening multifacetedly at different times and periods, You have people saying that, wait, I need to talk to someone that gets what I'm talking about. So when you talk about this idea about African-centered therapy or an approach that's using African-centered approach, it is cultural competent because it's acknowledging your lens. It's acknowledging where you're coming from. It's acknowledging the context in which you come from. So when I stepped into the therapy room and I spoke (coughs) about plantation, my therapist knew exactly what I was talking about. It was never a confusion. And the reason why I say this is because I've spoke to many mental health practitioners before and I've had to break down what I'm talking about already. That's a particular barrier. So, and you've also, and you made an important point here about intergenerational trauma. And when you talk about intergenerational trauma, you're talking about ideas where people have gone through multiple um, aspects of traumatic experience and they've always been told to hide it. So if you go back into our historical context, if we went for a traumatic experience, if we showed any emotion, we probably could have got killed for that. So now if you fast forward, say 500 years and we're going through traumatic experiences, which links the kind of Dr. Leary's work like post-traumatic slave syndrome and all of these terminologies are not new. They're, they're, they're out there. But many of us go through this idea around shame, trauma, guilt, and we're kind of going through these, these, these different types of thought patterns and these emotions, that when we now feel that we need help and support, we kind of subconsciously feel that we can't and we don't want to because the feeling and thinking that the individual that we speak to is not going to understand them is at the forefront of our minds at that time. But to the other point that you also mentioned, I would say that there's loads of African-centered therapists or cultural competent, competent therapists that are out there but what I will say is that they're not visible. So just the way in which many of us as youth workers, many of us as people that work in community, regardless of what we do, make ourselves visible to the community because you'll also go in the community and communities will say things like, there's no mentors, there's no youth workers, there's nobody working with young people. And we both know that's a fallacy based on what those individuals perceive to be or not to be there. So we make ourselves visible on social media platform because we realize that us just working in our little space in, in a little area, there may be families in that particular region that didn't even know that we existed. And that's why we have to change our approaches to engage with families and young people that probably didn't even know and recognize that our service was actually there. So in the same way, Mental health practitioners need to ultimately do the same thing. So, I remember there was a conference by a colleague of mine in London, and she's doing a symposium. I know that obviously COVID 19 prevented that, but I know she wants to continue it later on in the year. But the question is how do we get young black men or young black women in the therapy room? And they were calling for abstracts, and I sent an abstract and said it's not necessarily about getting them in the room, but what are mental health professionals doing to get out on the street? and utilizing that unrolled youth work approach. And I argue that in my research that the unrolled youth work approach actually can be applied in the concept of mental health because it's not about you sitting in a room, rather it's about how do you connect to the youth? So if you're not on Instagram, if you're not on Zoom, if you're not on um, YouTube, projecting in the community that your service is there. Yeah, you may have to pay for it, but the fact that the service is there, you may have someone local that would want to sponsor, donate, get funding in order for children and adults in order to access that particular service. So it is out there. It does need to be um, more abundant in the communities. But I think it's about the approach in which the professionals use in order to engage with children in our communities.
0: Yeah, I mean, I totally agree. And I think... That is a massive, massive, brilliantly put point that we've got cultural competent therapists out there. They are there. They are there. They may not be as visible, but they are there. Um, My whole thing is also, okay, how do you make somebody more culturally competent? Um, So, yes, there is like the, okay, I'm from the area or understand the area or I understand maybe some of the issues of things which, uh, if you're Afro-Caribbean person, um, but I'm also interested in the same way that you would go to university to get your PhD to help to make you become a clinical psych or whatever. You're not learning about the different cultural competencies, the different cultural experiences, the hyper-diversity that in the area you may be actually working in. Yeah. And I think that is, that is just a complete it just blows my mind. That that, that that wouldn't be part of the syllabus because so many of uh, white middle-class therapists I know have come from an, a space which is so different to the, the space they're actually working in. And I think therefore something has to happen because I think that's one of the key barriers. I mean, one of the barriers is, you know, why, and, let, and let me just be clear, I have to say this all the time, I know you know this, we don't, we don't ever for a moment think that this youth violence issue is a black issue but we do know that in some areas it disproportionately impacts black and brown people. So my whole thing is, okay, in those areas which disproportionately impact black and brown people, where is the culturally competent purpose to start the healing of the community? And I think that is one of the massive questions I have. Um, Something else you mentioned that I want to touch on is, and this is something which is so relevant right now, the sharing of Graphic incidences of of young people or any situation. So we recently had the situation in Manchester where the, the 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 black guy was tasered in front of his oh, yeah. um, in front of his son, and it was, it, you know what was mad, right? Um, so it was one of these interesting conversations where some of my friends. So I, I saw it and. I I didn't just retweet it. I I retweeted it with a question. Like, could this have been handled differently? Right? Now, this was the mad thing, yeah. One of the reasons I tweet this stuff is because I'm one of these people who's like, you know, if people don't see what's going on in terms of the injustices, how are we actually going to have the conversation? Right? But I tweeted it. And all over my social media, people were like, like white people and black people were just like horrified. And a lot of my white friends were like retweeting it and stuff like that one of my white friends texts me and you know what he said to me he said you know what Ben um I don't want you to think I'm not engaging with this like I think it is disgusting like I really want to retweet it but I couldn't even I couldn't even watch it and the reason why I couldn't watch it is because recently I've been diagnosed with PTSD and anything involving a young boy sets me off um I have like a metallic taste in my mouth and stuff starts going so I can't I can't actually watch your stuff. Yeah. And it was only at that point, it reminded me of a conversation obviously we have had. And I was like, you know what? I'm I'm really caught. Cool. I'm actually really torn. Like, I, I'm with you. I'm not one of those guys who starts sending I never would send graphic. Like when we've done stuff in the past, I've always warned you or you've warned me or you've said, have a look at this. So I get it from a youth finance perspective. But I suppose when I, when I sent that tweet out regarding this guy who was tasered, and then i got my friend who said that back. It did put the question in my mind, should we or shouldn't we be sharing this stuff? Mm-hmm. So there's, there's two trains of thought in my mind. Yeah. Share it because we need to let everybody know the injustices. We yes. can't just assume that everybody understands the, yes. some of the injustices we see. But on the flip side, are we actually re-traumatising ourselves yes. um, and setting off triggers when we do share this stuff?
1: What's, yeah. your, what's, your, what's your perspective? It triggers a bit of both. And I think what we can't do is conflate everything and put it into one we're not talking about watching a fight and posting a fight. We're talking about a systematic behavior that targets people that look like us. So we have to expose at any moment when we see things like racism. And I think that leads to a wider conversation about what racism is, and how racism manifests. And then also the victims of racism, whether consciously or subconsciously. And that's why it's important that we read as professionals. I, I, should, I don't stress this enough. This is something that Martin said to me from the, the, the moment I started getting into research. He said, one of the things we don't do as professionals is read. What we do is we feel, which is cool, but we need to understand the context in what we're working with. So when we go back to that video when you hear that young man say daddy before he even screamed that trauma started from there. The trauma started even before that. The moment that the the aggressive or passive aggressive behavior existed at that particular moment. So in that instance our society needs to constantly be aware of the elephant in the room that nobody wants to talk about. Because we can talk about gender. We can talk about sexuality. We can talk about disability, and all of those things um, in its appropriate time have its right to have discussions where people mistreat people on the basis of those things. However, historically, systematically, whether consciously or subconsciously, there's been a thought pattern and behaviours that exist around those thought thought patterns. So when we're talking about racism, we're talking about a system, a system that is designed to destroy people of colour, and we can't run away from that. So when we see those particular images in those particular videos, we have to ask also another question. If this video was played 300 years ago, would it be very similar to the things that we hear about or used to hear about in the south of the United States? And your answer would be yes. And there's been multiple issues throughout time where we've heard about these very minute situations where individuals have taken the life of black men and black women, from the police, the criminal justice system, from individuals that claim to be um, people that are protecting their community and killing people whilst they're doing citizen's arrests. So it gives context that it doesn't only happen in America, it happens here in the UK. We might not get shot at the rate of individuals in America, but we get strangled a lot here people die in custody here, people die en route to go to mental health institutions to get an assessment and we're not having a wider conversation about what racism is and how that manifests in entertainment, education, health and all other forms of policy and practices that are hostile to particular communities. So we have to be very diligent with that because when I hear individuals say that um, they find it very hard to see, I get it, but at the same time, do you understand the context? That's why I keep using the word context. Because when we see that, we feel the hurt because we feel that that can be our son. We feel that, you know what, that could be me driving home and then mistreat me at nighttime. But fortunately, there was a camera on show that can actually show that injustice to remind people that it's not just about saying that you're not racist, but it's also about anti-racism and anti-racism is about a behavior and it's also about action in order to change that narrative and that thought process that individuals in your personal vicinity may have mm-hmm. but when we're talking about youth violence now that's something very different because we can talk about the context of fighting young people using weapons and being violent to each other and context is important, again, because for many of us that are understanding or seeking to understand the phenomena that exist amongst our young people, we share these images and videos amongst each other, but the context is, is that we understand why we're sending it to each other. So you may say to me, you oh, know, Craig, did you hear about that madness that happened in London? Or I'd say, Ben, did you hear about the stabbing that happened in Birmingham? it got caught on camera. And then I give you the opportunity to see that, but the context is is that you want to further understand what that is. But yes, there is a thin line between that re-traumatising of each other in the same way that we may have looked at that video of the injustice and re-traumatising each other in that way. However, the way that those videos are shared, in my humble opinion, are slightly different. We're
0: mm. no,
1: really- talking about young people portraying or displaying these particular behaviours for fun. Mm. That's the difference. Yes. It's not for teaching, it's for fun. And I'm not saying that we can't be re-traumatized through any of those images, but there's a big difference of hype, fun, versus I want to show people what that trauma is. But I also yeah. get it from that context because you would say in Hollywood that, you know, we have done seeing slavery films, because all you're doing is reminding us of a history that was a small part of our history. It didn't really show the, you know, the vast excellence of our history that we can potentially convey on a cinema screen. So we could have a conversation all day ultimately about that, but I think <clears throat> context is important. I think the reason and the benefit of showing those particular videos, whilst we feel hurt while we watch it, is to remind the people that racism still exists and the the approaches of particular groups and entities and individuals, and these are the fruits of racist behaviours that still exist within British society.
0: Yeah, and it's not just reminding. I think for some people it's a complete awareness because I think some people are so naive or it's not even just naive, they've just not grown up in a context where this is even a conversation for them. And we might argue that how can you not be? But I, it's, it's so, I still meet people who've grown up in sleepy villages across the UK mm. who have never met a black person. And the only, the, way, the only way they connect in or see people of colour is what they see on the TV screen yes. or in their music videos and stuff. So <clears throat> I personally think it is important to share this stuff. Um, and I think it's important to let people know. Because I always say this, what would have been the outcome if, Stephen Lawrence's murder was caught on camera or you know if somebody had recorded that would it would it have taken almost 20 years for these guys to have got got Mm -hmm. to prison would the people who still haven't been caught be now in prison so for me and like you said I think for me personally it becomes personal because that father who had his son looked like me and and the son was the same age as one of my children. Look like what, So so for me, I always put myself in that position where I'm like, well, while I don't know the circumstances and maybe the circumstances meant that that I couldn't have been in that situation, I'm also not naive enough to not think that I could easily be in that situation. So I think it's a really important thing. Let's move on to COVID-19. Yes. And again, um, you know, you, you touched on this in the beginning when, when we were talking. How has... Coronavirus impacted you personally because I think we can sometimes depersonalize everything and just very quickly move on to the practicalities, yeah, yeah? work, money, um, freedom, and I think that's all. I think that's right, but I think also let's 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 get into the real talk about how has this impacted your life with your family, um, loved ones, and also let's then talk about the impact of COVID-19 on the young people yeah. um, and the families that you've
1: worked with? I think the, the, from me personally, from a family perspective, I guess our guards just went up from the get-go because we tried to protect the chief. Um, we call the chief, that's my nan. She's the last one in the family. So we say we're protecting the chief by any means necessary. So that just meant that, you know, we made sure that nan was um, in home, anything she needed. You know, we put it at the front door. There's no reason whatsoever why she needs to come out of the house. Um, so that was kind of the, the main priority. And then also I had an aunt that's, you know, just just, uh, just beat cancer. So it was like them two had the main priority. And my mum's side to make sure that they were good. Um, I guess, you know, the usual stresses, you know, the fact that the kids are um, at home and were having to tr- um, change our, kind of whole dynamic and way in which we work and being online and, you know, you're on, you know, online. I just seen my, my, my son run past looking in the mirror, you know, so it's yeah. stuff like that, you know, making sure you don't run in, but also being comfortable with the fact and idea that it's cool for him to run in, you know, cause we're at home, you know, and, mm. and, and it's also very different to them as well. And I think, you know, the children get frustrated too, because they're used to socializing so much um, and being told that you're at home having to do homework and be at home and you know it's you know and especially you know as you know we're educators so education for us is is you know is a, is a big thing so we're kind of good um in that sense um financially fortunately i've been okay because as i said i was commissioned to do some work in norfolk um that was probably a bigger concern for me because i'm always making sure that you know that you know as one of the breadwinners of the family you know, and making sure that, you know, money's right, that even if if someone else in the family may need help or support, that we're ultimately there to to support it. Um, so whilst I kind of... That was kind of my priority, more so to make sure that was good. And I think everything else in terms of um, family-wise was all right because, you know, if, if, if someone needs water or milk or bread and they can't get to the bank or the shops, you know, it's, it's nothing to spend £5 pound on them things and bring it round to somebody and leave it at the door. I think... um you know, like with a lot of people, it's the kind of day-to-day stresses and the fatigue started to set in. Probably about week five or six. Um, mm. Idea about you know we just we don't want to you know be in the house anymore. You know, as as men, you know we you know. Bruf, I, you know I'm There's a reason why we wear hats. So for the I'm ladies, taking that, my hat off. Yeah, bro. The I'm ladies that uh, watch these things and don't know. You know, this, you know, we know that the, the, the... But it's important that we talk about mental health as well because as men, the barbers is very important to our mental health and our mental well-being as well. And that's why I call my barber the counsellor because every time I sit in his chair, I'm just... Even if I doze off and he's doing what he's doing, he asks me about everything that's going on in my life. Craig, let me, let me get jumping there. This is what I'm trying to... You know how many
0: conversations I've had women on social media... I've said a couple of things about my barbers and my hair and that. And they were like, oh, you're not not taking it too seriously. You know, you tell us to just be natural, we'll be natural. And what you just said there, (laughs) they don't get it. It's not just a haircut. It's an experience. It's a moment just to relax. I I always say the barbershop is Mm -hmm. We can talk about politics. We can talk about football. We can talk about faith. Um, My barber, other than maybe my wife and my therapist, The barber's the next one that says, how you doing, Ben? How you doing, big man? What's going on? I'll follow you on social media. Mm How's the book going? How's the charity going? Where are you you getting that? For half hour, 45 minutes. You're not getting it. So what I'm trying to say to people is not just I need a haircut, because like I said, I'm not taking my hair off because you're braver than me. Um, (laughs) And and you're younger, so you've got all your hair, right? But for me, I'm like, no, I'm missing that interaction, not just with the barber, but also with the rest of the community as well because it's a a, a, a a meeting spot.
1: And jumping on a conversation and, you know, know, my barbershop's wild. One minute they're talking about Game of Thrones, then we're talking about, (laughs) you know, accountancy and man not paying their taxes. And then someone will start coming out with some mad um, theory and then everyone, Mm. the next one will come in and say, yo, but the man believe in God. And you got 10 people with different perspectives. Right. Community vibe. And I said this before that, when we talk about the closures, I've said this before that during austerity, that when buildings was closed, the last spots for people in the community to go to, for many of us in the community, was the pub, um, the bookie, and the barbershop. You know, and those are the only places where you'd get to kind of have a reasoning um, with your people. Um, and I think uh, in relation to mental health is important. I mean, I even checked on my barber the other day, but he's not answering, so I don't know if he's thinking that I'm trying to, come at him on some, <laughs> dad, some sneaky or whatever. But I was only just checking him to make sure that he's yeah. good. So if you're watching mm-hmm. this, Anton, come on, man, anti-phone. Um, <laughs> so uh, yeah. it's important. It's important. So I think, you know, as I said, the fatigue started to kick in. You know, you have your updates, you have your down days. But as I said to, um, you know, I was talking to uh, my PhD supervisor the other day and I um I said that working in Norfolk for me has been like a bit of a break because mm. it kind of takes you away from them. It's took me away from the madness, you know, as city boys, the type of violence and stuff that we kind of experience every day. It's not on the same level that I, that mm. I experience there in the day-to-day. And I think it just kind of takes me away, takes, takes my thoughts and my feelings away from a lot of the mm. stuff. And I would say that, you know, it's, it's okay to be vulnerable and it's okay to say to people that you're not doing well and you're not doing good. Um, because it gives people context and understanding and I think it also shares awareness by default as well because then people will be mindful about their actions towards you and others moving forward. So when a couple of my close friends realise of not necessarily how they offended me but more so how they affected me when they sent that video of the murder, it's made them more mindful now about when they share things and it's made them think, and if if this situation where it's caused me to have a certain feelings made an a group of people now think about their behaviours as professionals and adults, maybe those are the sometimes those small small wins that we get in the community about moving forward.
0: Yeah, uh, no, exactly that, and I think this is it, isn't it? It's, it's shone a spotlight on the things which matter and the things that maybe don't matter as much. Yeah. Your fight, I just obviously because this is like. Craig, always talking to you, you know, I feel like we could do a five-hour conversation straight. And what I want to do, actually, is that we need to do some, like, Instagram um, live uh, quick quick ones as well. But just finally, just what's your view on how COVID-19 is impacting young people? You said it at the start. There was obviously, with lockdown, there was a, a massive kind of reduction. What we're seeing in, in London, you know, even today... Uh, 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 another young man i think 18 19 maybe a bit older but um
1: lost not his life 30, yeah.
0: Uh, yeah and so so for, for me i i've done a power talk with a, a surgeon um as well and he was saying that it's 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 not gone anywhere and actually he's seeing more people coming into a and e um so just in your opinion not just necessarily with the fatalities, but it's just what's how you how you finding young people are coping in COVID nineteen with COVID nineteen at I, present.
1: I think two things. I think some young people are not coping well, but I think the vast majority of young people are adapting. And whether that's a positive or negative adaptation, young people adapt. Young people adapt to any environment that they're ultimately in, um, and they'll they will make decisions based on what's available to them. So when I spoke about things like exploitation, not that I yeah. agree with you, but young people are adapting to the fact that nobody, money's not running like I used to run before. So they're yeah. taking risky um, or making risky choices um, in order to, you know, support themselves or support, you know, family members. Um but my concern is that whilst those vulnerabilities are, are up, you know, we can't just talk about, you know, the youth violence aspect. But, you know, things like mental health and mm-hmm. we've got things like, you know, uh, young people being more vulnerable to like neglect and um, all the forms of abuse. Um, and also the idea about the rise in uh, the use of social media, you know, TikTok's been going off. Um, yeah, I, saw, I saw your dance man I saw you know, your it, dance it, and it, with it, the family it, it, and stuff. Instagram has been going off yeah. um, and I think the things that now have now been introduced to young people on social media platforms I remember at one point Tory Lanes broke the internet um, I remember swarms in London broke the internet and what they were showing was online porn and the that fact is. that they was able to, on well, more so Tory Lanez, because they had connections with Instagram, they was able to get their accounts blocked and reinstated in less than 24 hours. And that just kind of demonstrates to me that, you know, when people are bored and they have so much access to these particular types of images and videos, it just shows how toxic the community can become based on these images and what we're being projected. And I think that we just need a stronger counter-narrative of arguing mm. that it's, you know, I, I, I say it straight, that this stuff's demonic, man. And, mm. you, know, you know, our young people have been exposed. I never forget, a 12-year-old had asked his dad, does he know who Swarms was? And I think he asked the question thinking that he did. his dad didn't know, but his dad did know. And that's a 12-year-old <laughs> in his bedroom where mum thinks he's sleeping and he's in there watching that doing God knows what. And... Mm. You know young people now you know trying out new highs you know things like um weed cookies and weed cakes have gone up in price because everyone's in their house now just want to chill and get high you know people are trying out new other um forms of of highs you know people are drinking this lean now codeine and sprite and mm. uh, um, you know uh, medicines and mixing it with other liquids and other and it's just you're just thinking, wow, this is what's actually happening. And I'm more worried about post-COVID than, than yeah. COVID because post, we're now talking about if there's not a resource and there's not um, workers that understand what's going on with young people currently, and there's not the resource to be able to engage with that. You know, I just read on a newspaper, I think it was yesterday or this morning maybe, talking about 300 billion from the Treasury And talking about post-COVID-19, that taxes may have to go up. And we're talking about recession. you're thinking, Mm -hmm. we're going into a depression. And I think these are the things that, you know, we... Have to also consider in the ripple effect that that's going to happen on children and young people, and then also you yeah. got young people that have been in beef where they're using things like um, House Party's been another interesting social media platform that I've been paying attention to, where you know young people are on this particular platform and arguing with each other and joining chats, and then as a consequence of what somebody's done or said on on that platform. 24 hours later there's a shooting in an area and because the media are not reporting things that's going on in the community it would seem that things are not happening Um, but they are and that's kind of birthed the uh, kind of road street reporters Um, you've got like Scar City Studios and others that are talking about things that are happening in a local community Whereas BBC and ITV, because they're probably social distancing or Birmingham Mail or any kind of London um, tabloid Mm -hmm. writing about these individuals are able to now capitalise them because people want to know what's going on in their local community. People want to know what's, 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 what's happening, especially amongst young people. But I think it also kicks back to the point I was making about mental health as well, because if those opportunities have now been given to these individuals or groups to start platforms and talk about particular types of crime or things happening in the community. Also can create fears in the local community amongst other young people that not necessarily are involved in anything, but just wanna be outside for whatever reason. And I think as parents and as adults, professionals, We need to stop thinking that young people that are outside are only outside because they're disobeying the law. They're outside because they want to be involved in some sort of criminality. There are some Mm -hmm. young people that are outside because they're trying to escape something inside of their household. Secondly, we have to also remember that they're children and young people, and they're so used to socially interacting throughout their lives, and now that's been cut short with information that's not clear, and they've been Mm -hmm. told that they have to stay in, and they've been told why and how and you know, how frequently they're able to move out if they're able to do so. Wow. bruv, well,
0: I mean, I just think we just articulated everything which we're seeing and like in London. And um, yeah, it is It is actually worrying. Just just because it's gone quiet doesn't mean the stuff has disappeared or things is, is not there. So I think it's a really good point. Bro, I'm going to end
1: our time. Short here. and sweet. Short and sweet. Um, we need an Instagram but, one though, so everyone can kind of jump in and ask. Yeah, questions. no, no, I want, yeah. I want to do that. Let's do
0: yeah. that very. Let's do that very soon. But, um, bro, it's always a pleasure just like touching base with you. Um, I love our conversations, bro. Um, I need to get one with me and you and and Ray and and Doctor Glenn and Tanaya. You know, it'll be yeah, it'll I mean, be about, five, mean, hours. It'd it'd be be about five hours. It'd be about five hours. Yeah, but you no, can
1: we'll, chop it up for five. I yeah, have to yeah, yeah exactly
0: you have to do five parts or something but yeah. no we'll do yeah. that but bro I think what you're doing with Solve and and we're doing some stuff together as well we've got some training coming up and stuff together bro it's amazing so thank you so much for your time Happy and stuff time, man bro. come on it's man it's always it's always it's always a pleasure man virtual. yeah 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 <laughs> yeah yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a, ver, a, ver, a, ver, a virtual a virtual spud so yeah. no respect the thing, man so um, yeah we'll speak soon yeah
1: alright in peace